0: Adam Bryant is managing director of the Exco Group, a senior leadership development and executive mentoring firm. Prior to this, Adam worked for 30 years as a journalist, including 18 years as a reporter, editor, and columnist at the New York Times. He interviewed more than 500 CEOs for Corner Office, a series on leadership that he created in 2009. That, by the way, is my go-to first piece I hunt for Sunday mornings when I crack open my New York Times. He also writes a monthly column for Strategy Plus Business Magazine and is the senior advisor to the Rubin Mark Initiative for Organizational Character and Leadership at Columbia University. Adam is the author of three books. His new book is The CEO Test, master the challenges that make or break all leaders published by Harvard Business Review which he co-authored with Kevin Scher the former president and then CEO of Amgen during which he grew the company to 16 billion dollars in revenue from just 1 billion Adams first book the corner office indispensable and unexpected lessons from CEOs on how to lead and succeed was a New York Times bestseller drawing on insights from CEOs to identify the qualities that help explain why certain executives are promoted over others to become CEOs. In his second book, Quick and Nimble, Lessons from Leading CEOs on How to Create a Culture of Innovation, Adam distilled the wisdom of hundreds of business leaders to identify the secrets to a high-performing corporate culture. Probably nobody has spoken to as many CEOs as Adam has. And in this podcast, he lays out the seven most critical tests that determine the success of a CEO. He gives us advice on how to simplify strategy so that everyone can get on board. He tells us why we should be thinking about strategy as making bets rather than plans and offers a compelling metaphor for strategy and leadership. Think of it as keeping bunnies in their boxes. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam Bryant. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Great to be here. Thanks. So I love to open us up, with just getting to know you a little bit personally. So if you could complete this sentence for us, if you really know me, you know that. How would you finish that sentence?
1: It's probably important to note that I'm a dual citizen from Canada originally, border hopped as a kid and have lived in a lot of different cities. So that's fact one. Fact two is probably people would say about me, I'm a serial enthusiast. I get really obsessed and into things. And sometimes I'll learn how to do something on the level of five out of ten and then I'll move on to something else. So when I turned 40, it somehow irritated me that I didn't know how to ride a unicycle. So I taught myself how to ride a unicycle. <laughs> Right now, I'm obsessing on ping pong, and I have a ping pong coach, and I'm determined to get better and consistently beat my future (laughs) son-in-law. Love it. I
0: love it. And where are you joining us from now?
1: New Orleans right now. We moved here a year ago to be with our two grown daughters, who were both ER
0: nurses. One of my favorite cities. Great. So you get to hop around a lot, right? You've got broad, broad experience having interviewed hundreds of CEOs. And I know that's often those conversations go to strategy. So my question for you is, what is your definition of strategy?
1: Sure. And just to build on some of that context, so my background is mostly as a journalist, 30 years as a journalist, 18 years at the New York Times, and got into the leadership space back in 2009 when I started a weekly interview series in the Sunday business section called Corner Office, which was based on a very simple what if. What if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them about their company?
0: That's the first thing I turned to on the Sunday Times, by the way. That's great. Thank
1: you. So I did that for a decade, interviewed 525 CEOs, left the Times four years ago. Now I work for a consulting firm called the Exco Group. And we go inside big companies, work with leadership teams, one-on-one mentoring. We do a lot of work with cohorts. So that's the context. And in those sessions, we do leadership teams. I mean, one of my skills is pattern recognition. If you show me like a hundred things, I'm going to start spotting the patterns. And one of the things I noticed is when we work with leadership teams, we'd say, tell us about your strategy, that very often their answers would fall into a couple of traps. If you will. One is that they go to very high altitude and almost are just kind of a general description of what they do rather than what they are trying to achieve. And at the other extreme, they go to very low altitude, down in the weeds, and they'll hand you a list of 12 priorities for the next quarter. And it struck me like neither of those are really strategies. So I started thinking like there is this missing middle layer, if you will. And in all my interviews, I came across a guy named Dinesh Paliwal, who's a former CEO of Harman International. And he told me about the simple strategy framework that he he used for his board. And as soon as he explained it to me, I just fell out of my chair. Like, that's so brilliant and simple. Four-part, one-page document. The first part is, give us a concrete summary statement of what you are trying to achieve, you know, over time period X, right? Which then raises the question, well, how are you going to do that? So, what are the three or four levers you're going to pull to achieve that goal? Then thirdly, let's have a level set on the headwinds we're going to face. What are the challenges we all should agree that we have to overcome to reach that goal? And finally, a scoreboard to measure progress. Could be quantitative, could be qualitative. We have to get this product out the door by period X. It's those four parts. And, you know, I always give full credit to Dinesh and all our work at our firm. The number of companies we work with that I explain to them, they start nodding their head and say, yeah, we're going to adopt that. Because I do find one of the biggest challenges inside companies is that there's not a shared language around leadership. And I think it's incredibly important for everybody to be aligned on what these ideas mean. I mean, I didn't go to business school when I was younger. I assumed that everybody he did have a shared understanding of strategy, but boy, getting inside these big companies, it's been a real eye-opener for me that people don't have that shared understanding.
0: Yeah. Tell us a little bit more when you say the shared language around leadership. Why do you use the word language? Well, I find a lot
1: of companies, you know, traps they fall into. One is they'll say, okay, everybody, we're going to get a leadership offsite and they'll go away for a half day or full day or weekend or whatever. And it'll be super inspirational. there will be a lot of brain popcorn and they come back and they're inspired, but it's never talked about again. It's sort of like, oh, that was really great. And, you know, I feel pumped up, but it's just not part of the everyday
0: conversation. Yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense. I don't want to get into your latest book and especially chapter one in a moment while we have you here, you've interviewed so many CEOs of those interviews. What was the biggest surprise? Yeah.
1: When I started this series back in 2009 with this, what if, what if I sat down with CEOs and didn't ask about their companies in those early months of interviewing, I would test out different questions to see what ones worked and got surprising answers. And I think the biggest surprise to me was this simple question of how do you hire what questions do you ask in job interviews? And I have heard so many bizarre interview questions that CEOs ask. And at some level, it's understandable because by the time somebody gets to a CEO, they've been coached and trained and scripted on all the right answers. And so I think CEOs just out of necessity and time efficiency have had to come up with what I call bank shot questions, right? How people present this polished facade. So how do you get around that facade to find out what they're really like? Because job interviews are designed to be crystal evolves, right? What am I going to know about you in six months from now working with you that I can find out about today? And so I've just heard so many really surprising questions that are frankly great dinner party questions too. But to me, probably the single most, I've been playing this running dinner party game with the CEOs I interview and also just in myself, in my own head, if you could ask somebody only one question in a job interview and decide whether to hire them based on their answer, what would it be? And I think the best question I heard, people sometimes think that's pushing the limits of HR policy. But to me, the most effective question is, tell me about the qualities of your parents or whoever raised you that you like the most and dislike the most. The usual question is like, who are you most like, your mother, your father, right? But this goes deeper. So blank piece of paper, four quadrants, qualities you like the most of each parent and the least of each parent. In my theory, it's not an insight, but it's just this idea that we cannot escape our parents, even though we like to think that we can, because if you think about your parents again or whoever raised you, there are things that they did that you really like that you probably do too. And there are things that probably they did that drive you bonkers. And so you are going to do 180 degrees the opposite all the time of those things. And to me, that's like the best crystal ball Because I'm just trying to understand what you're going to be like six months from now, right? The honeymoon's over. I put you on the hot seat. You're feeling some stress. Like, are you a finger pointer? Are you accountable? How are you going to react? And to me, that is the best
0: crystal ball. That makes sense. Yeah, I can see how that implies so much of their context and their long-term behavior. So talk a little bit then about if you're interviewing, say, a potential CEO, you spent a lot of time thinking about what are the key tests or attributes. And, you know, you started off with a long list and you narrowed down to seven. So I wonder if you could just talk just a little bit about that. I know stuff like culture, like teamwork, transformation, just characterize the work and what your conclusions were. Sure. And first of all, my co-author is Kevin Scherer,
1: the former CEO of Amgen, who's just a terrific partner. We tried to create the metaphorical tease of the breadth of my interviews and the depth of his experience. been a board director, built Amgen. I mean, just so many great stories that we had to tell. Before we wrote the book, we wanted to be clear on the questions we were asking. And the main one, I think, is captured in the subtitle, this idea, like, what are the challenges that make or break all leaders? Why do people succeed or fail in leadership roles? And even though the book is called The CEO Test, it's not just for CEOs. It's like, what are those universal tests? And then what can we learn from CEOs about how to do them well? That was our frame up for the book. And, you know, you can start with 300 things and we did in that initial whiteboard, but you start winnowing down the list and we use this metaphor of Russian nesting dolls, like what ideas nest inside others and ultimately came up with seven tests that we think help explain why people succeed or fail in their roles. And the first one is, can you just come up with a simple plan for strategy that everybody on the front lines can understand? And and also understand how their work contributes to that strategy. There's got to be like a clear line so that's not just a fancy slide in a deck. Can you build a culture, a high performing culture? Can you build teams that operate like true teams? Because most leadership teams are teams in name only, right? They're not actually operating like a team. The fourth one is, can you really listen? Because I think listening is one of the most underrated superpowers of effective leadership. It's not typically taught in business schools, but I think it's so important. Can you drive transformation? Because transformation is now a process. It's not like an event, right? Everybody is doing this. Another test that we've learned the last couple of years, can you handle a crisis? And finally, for the last chapter, we shifted from this idea of what you do as a leader to how you need to be as a leader. So the last chapter is about what we call the inner game of leadership. And just how do you in your head get this infinite puzzle right so that you can be calm and confident and credible and not, you know, these are big stamina jobs. You've got a new problem coming at you every single minute. So how do you stay
0: centered in your head so that you can perform at a high level? Yeah, I love that you brought it into the internal individual mindsets. If We could zoom in on the strategy a bit. I've worked with some people who are able to take a complex view of what the future could be or what the issue is, and they're able to shoot that arrow and hit just the right question. Is that something that we can learn? Is it innate? Yeah. just to build on what you said, I mean, to me, I think that is one of
1: the things that sets effective leaders apart. And with all the people that I've interviewed, more than 800 leaders now, all different backgrounds, one of the common threads is they have the skill of simplifying complexity. To so take all the complexity in the world, in your industry, in your company, and boil it down to a simple framework. As I always say, it's one of the leaders' tests is to be able to stand on a stage at an all-hands meeting, whether it's virtual or in real life, and just answer the kinds of questions that little kids ask in the background seat, right? Like, where are we going? How are we going to get there? And to be able to do that takes a certain habit of mind. Now, I do think it can be built, but it is a muscle that you really need to develop. You know, for every six-page memo you write, can you cut it to three? Can you cut it to one and a half? With every 60-slide deck, can you boil it down to 10? And not only doing it yourself, but watching people who do it well and just recognizing, I need to build that muscle. I think you can get better at it. That is the core skill. And also recognizing, I think it's an important component of self-awareness of all leaders that they need to understand that there is always going to be a gap between how clear you think the strategy is in your own head and how clear it is to everybody else. We see this phenomenon all the time. It's like, everybody knows a strategy. It's obvious. It's like, no, it's not. Especially when you go to the people on the front lines and to constantly be working that blind spot and going to the people, it's like, this is a strategy. Do you understand it? Do you understand how when you pick up an oar and help row the boat, you're contributing to it. And just constantly testing that and making sure that it's in everyday language. I interviewed Susan Salka of AMN Healthcare, and she has this great story. She talked about her father growing up, and he would always say, can you put that in cows, chickens, and taters for me? And she said, when he first started saying that, I kept saying, like, why do you keep saying that? But now as a leader, she gets that. It's got to be everyday, simple language, because there is this bias in the business world to make things more complex or sound more complex than they should be or actually are, people sometimes reach for those $20 words when a five cent word would be more effective. So I'm always running things through Susan's cows, chickens,
0: and taters filter. Why do you think that is? Why is there a tendency to reach for the $100 words and to share a complex strategy? It's actually something that I've noticed a lot
1: in all my years as an editor at both Newsweek and the New York Times is this phenomenon that I call expertitis, which is what happens when people just are too close to a subject. It might be a reporter who spent a month reporting a story or somebody who's grown up in a company or industry and everything is completely obvious to them, but it's not to somebody who's hitting it cold. And when I was an editor, I would often talk to my reporters before they sat down to write the story and say, tell me about how you're going to sketch out the top of the piece. And I would look at them and I say, you are suffering from expertitis. It is the most noble affliction of great reporters. You've done so much work on this thing. And so that's another blind spot that leaders have to be aware of. You know, how many times do you go inside companies and everything's like buzzword bingo and, you know, there's acronyms and all that stuff. And I'm always struck sometimes when you go on companies' websites and click on the About Us page, you can read a fat paragraph on the About Us page and say to yourself, I have no idea what you do. (laughs) No idea at all. And to me, that's an example of expertitis. Right, right,
0: right, yeah follow-up question here, it seems that, you know, simplifying the strategy allows you to land it more effectively, but there also is just the number of times you have to repeat it for it to be heard. That's come up probably a lot of times. Can you talk to us a little about that? Sure. And when we work with leadership teams and do all the
1: work of coming up with a simple plan, once we've landed that, I always say to them, okay, now you are half done because the other half is communicating it. And I think we always have to come back to that expression that there's no such thing as over-communication. And I've heard that from so many leaders, as an important part of their learning curve about how to lead. You know, you almost have to be like a politician and just repeating it over and over for people to hear it. There was a great rule of thumb from one CEO who said, you almost have to give yourself permission for people to make fun of you, to tease you, where they start rolling their eyes and they say, I know exactly what KN's going to say because he says it all the time. And we go inside companies where people do that and like, they've got you, right? Like the leader's got you. I'm a sucker for a great metaphor too. And a woman named Laurel Ritchie, she used to run the WNBA. She's now one of our mentors at the XCO group. She uses this image. Leaders' job is to keep all the bunnies in the box, right? So they get all the bunnies in the box, like, okay, everybody's good. Everybody knows where you're going. You turn your back and like all the bunnies start jumping out of the box and going off in their own directions. And I think that is an important part of leadership because when you leave a vacuum of communication, people fill it with their own narratives and people will start creating their own narratives about how their specific plan is helping the company overall, even though it's actually a diversion from the overarching strategy. So that's why I just love that
0: image of got to keep the bunnies in the box, guys. That's a great visual metaphor and makes a lot of sense. So Adam, I have a ton of other questions, but I know we're reaching the top of our time with you. You've talked about viewing business and strategy as making bets and that that might be a more healthy or helpful frame to think about strategy. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: And this is a later in my career insight about business, but I think so much of strategy and all the work that's done around it is to create the impression of certainty. You need confidence. You need to inspire people. It's like, wow, you really see the future. But I think I think business often takes it too far. I mean, I've looked at spreadsheets that project out revenue for the next 10 years down to the last penny when, you know, it's harder to see beyond the next six months. The upside is clear, right? That's how you inspire people, and wow, they're confident, and, you know, people follow people who have a vision. And so that's great. But I think the potential downside of it is that it creates the impression of certainty for people who are farther down in the organization. I think it would be a much healthier conversation, especially in this age of endless disruption. To say, look, this is the bet we're making on where the industry is going and how we're going to win in it. And we're confident about our strategy. And I think as a leader, you have to be prepared for that person who raises their hand in the virtual or in real life meeting and says, but how do we know if it's going to work? And I think the most effective answer in that context is like we can't be 100% certain. Nobody can in this day and age. We're 80% certain this is going to work, but we need everybody to commit 100% to making it work. And if it doesn't work, we'll pause and pivot and explain that to you, but we need everybody to commit to this bet right now. To me, I think that's a more human and authentic conversation than saying, here's our projected revenues for the next 10 years based on
0: this plan. Right. I can see that even takes more confidence than to portray the 100% confidence. So just tell us a little bit of what you're working on now and how people can follow you, learn from you.
1: So my personal website is Adam Bryant Books, all one word, dot com, and I encourage people to connect with me on LinkedIn. I've got four different interview series on LinkedIn with CEOs, CHROs, board directors, and we're doing a series called Leading in the B-Suite with Prominent Black Leaders. I do that with Rhonda Morris, who's the CHRO at Chevron. We've got about 180,000 subscribers 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 in total for those four series so please follow those and you know my approach to the same there were after leadership insights so many people have so much wisdom to share our firm's website is xcoleadership.com. and i'm in talks with my publisher about my next book maybe in a couple of years that'll be up but thank you
0: excellent well thank you for being here thanks for the work you do and for taking the time to share it with us enjoyed the conversation thank you Kahan. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.